Father God, we want to come before you this morning as well and, um, and, and realize that in, in, our, in our lives there can be, be heaviness, um, whether it's, it's wrestling with, with the things that Kelly just shared with us where, uh, where, we, where our expectations and reality don't meet and we're wrestling with our emotions and, or we're wrestling with uh, whether it's postpartum depression or, or, regu- or just normal everyday depression or uh, what, whatever those heavy things that we're all churning through. Lord, we, we pray that you meet us in those spaces. And one, like in Kelly's story, that uh, we realize we're not alone because you're there. Uh, but Lord, we also pray uh, that you can bring us together in the midst of those spaces, that we can tell our stories like Kelly did so that we realize um, that we don't have to walk that journey alone, uh, that, that, we're, that the reason we gather in a community like this is to care for each other, to hear each other, to walk with each other, and to continually spur one another on. Lord, we, we pray for those who are experiencing loss today as well. Lord, we think of Lisa, who's in Florida, uh, just mourning her sister uh, with her family. Lord, we pray that, um, that all the, the, the quagmire of emotion that has got to be cycling and flowing through her um, doesn't overwhelm her, that she can feel your presence close with her in that space, uh, with her family, with her, with her kids, with her extended family, with her parents, uh, as they wrestle with, um, with, all, with that loss. God, we pray that, that, um, that ultimately all of the things that we bring in this morning uh, are met by you. Lord, as we, as we approach your, your word as well, uh, we pray that we can hear your voice speak to us through it that we can hear the message that you have for each of us today, that we can go convicted where we need to be convicted and encouraged where we need to be encouraged to go out and show your love to the world. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. I want to open today with a, with a question. Uh, serious question. I want you to think about it. It's simple, though. How did you get here today? How did you get here today? Now, now my question, um, or, my, or my my guess would be that most of you, the first thing you thought of was the, tr- the, the mode of transportation you took to get here, right? You're like, well, I got here in my car or my van or my truck or on a bike or I walked. Uh, that's probably the first thing that you thought of, but I want you to go a little bit further. That's the simplest and most straightforward way to answer that question. But if we keep unpacking it, we realize that there is a whole lot more to the answer. Maybe we can ask it this way. How did you get to this church, Harbor Life, at this moment right now? Maybe you're thinking through that. We've heard some of those in Next Step stories as well. Kelly said, we came here because we got married here. Well, that's, that's, that's a good way to answer that question. Or maybe X number of months ago, we were looking for a church home. We were visiting, and, and so we started here. That's a good answer too. But we realize that we can still unpack more layers of that, can't we? So why were you looking for a church? Well, because my kids were asking questions, or I grew up in church because you felt God's call on your life. When we really start asking ourselves the question, how did I get here? We realize that we are shaped by so many different things, aren't we? The situation we grew up in, how our parents raised us, that one coach or youth leader that encouraged us in this one thing, or that painful comment the girl in seventh grade says that still pops up in your mind every once in a while. The jobs we do, the communities we live in, the mistakes we've made, the diagnoses we receive, all those little details are contributing factors relative to who we are today and how we got to this space at this moment right now. We're going to focus on that this morning. 
is we're going we're gonna to walk through the story of Jacob today. We actually, the story we're going to look at is it's actually massive, and I'm not going to be able to read the whole thing. It's like three chapters and a ton of places, parts. I'd encourage you to read them on your own. But we're going to walk through the story of Jacob today, and, and, and we've seen a number of things already. Jacob starts out uh, as a deceiver, as a trickster. He's even called the heel grabber, right? Uh, he steals uh, his brother's birthright with some stew, Right, the, all of the all of the um, inheritance that, that his brother was supposed to receive, Jacob tricks him out of. We moved on to that. He he goes on to not only take his birthright, but he also tricks him out of his blessing as well, which is the which is the commitment or the blessing that God gave to Abraham that says, "I'm going to make you into a great nation." That passed on to Isaac now gets passed on to Jacob. We've seen him manipulate situations to get what he wants, and now he's on the run. That's where we ended last week. Now, we've been looking at the story of Jacob through the lens of forgiveness as well. Last week, we set the stage for forgiveness, what forgiveness is and what it's not. Uh, We we can't go into all of that today, but a few of the highlights on that. Forgiveness, at its most basic level, is the releasing of a debt. If somebody slights you, uh, it creates debt. Somebody steals $100 from you, they've created a physical debt of $100, but they've also created an emotional debt. Now you have to work to trust them again or feel safe or all of those things. Those cost, and there's a debt there. What forgiveness is, is saying, I realize that you owe me this debt, you owe me $100, and I forgive it. We talked about that last week in its most basic understanding. We also said it's not a number of things that we've thought it was in the past. For instance, the idea of forgive and forget is not in Scripture. It's not what forgiveness is. Even the word that God, God never actually says he forgets Anything. He, he, the phrase that's used throughout Scripture is that I will remember it no more. And we like to think in our minds, well, that means to forget. No. In the Hebrew, the word for forget, does anybody remember it? What's that? Zakar, right? So the way you can always remember the Hebrew word for, uh, for, to re- for remember is zakar because you remember where you parked zakar. Now you're all going to remember from now on, hopefully. Kerry uh, got it, so that's good. Um, Zakar, what that means is we translate it to remember, um, but it also, it, it's a little bit more uh, or detailed than that. It's, 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 the, it's the bringing of something to the forefront of your mind in order to take action according to it. So when it says that God remembered Noah, he didn't forget that he was out there. He called him to the forefront of his mind to take action according to him. And so when God says, I'll remember it no more, it's not that he can't intellectually recall it. It's that he's choosing not to take action according to it anymore. The idea that when we forgive is that we don't, have, we don't sacrifice justice in forgiveness, of the, the desire to set things right. We don't just forgive and forget because it's impossible, and that's not what even Scripture asks us to do. We just release the debt. And we talk, one of the main points we made last week in the midst of that was that mo- most often, much of the time that we're forgiving, it's less for the person that's being forgiven and more for the person doing the forgiving we realize it sets us free. It's a burden we don't have to carry anymore. Now, we realize that forgiveness is incredibly complicated. One, incredibly difficult. If anybody says it's easy, it's not. It's one of the hardest processes that you'll do. We also talked about how there's multiple layers to this thing as well. So, for instance, we didn't talk about reconciliation last week. And we won't talk about it this week either, but it's coming. So don't worry about that. But what we are going to focus on today 
is why we would want to do the hard work of forgiveness. What's the point? Why would it matter? Why would we put ourselves through that? And we're going to do that by continuing to follow the story of Jacob. Like he said, he's chosen to run away from his brother rather than deal with what's going on. And so we're going to focus on two things today. First, how did Jacob get to that point? What factors played in? How did the, the question we opened with today? And second, how does that affect him moving forward? Uh, we're going to start today, and we're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 29 and 30. We're going to be jumping on a little bit, so if you're following along, it's going to be tough. I'll try to make sure it's all on the screen. Um, but to, before we jump into 29, let's just reset where we were in 27. When Rebekah, that's Jacob's mother, was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. So that's where we ended last week. And so let's pull up the map here a minute just to kind of get, get situated on, uh, on where we were. Um, the story begins down in the promised land over there. On the, you can see that on the circle on the left. Uh, there's somewhere in that region, probably the southern part of Israel. Um, we also know that when we, when we started the story of Abraham, he started in a place called Ur, which is all the way there on the right. But if you remember that when we were talking about Abraham's story, he began in Ur and then walked up to Haran. That's actually where uh, Abram's dad stops his journey. Uh, and it's apparently where, uh, where Jacob's mother's brother, Laban, is living as well. And so that's where he's going to be headed back to, up to the northern part of, uh, uh, of Assyria there or the southern part of Assyria, the northern part of, of Israel. <clears throat> and that's where Jacob's headed. So this is where the story picks up from there. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yeah, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they say. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is high and it's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well, then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was their shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel's, Rachel, Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. And we'll pause there for just a second. Because that last phrase is really interesting. He says, You are my own flesh and blood. And I wonder if Laban actually knows how loaded that phrase is. Laban is essentially saying here, we are like you and me. We're family. We're cut from the same cloth. And as you're going to see as we go through this story, he's more right than he even knows. See, it's really easy to read the story of Jacob 
and see that one of his main traits is the ability to be sly, right? We've seen that his whole way, his, his ability to manipulate situations to his advantage. That's crystal clear. But let's not read over the origin of that trait. If you remember back to the story of Jacob stealing his brother's birthright, that's, uh, that's on him. He, he comes up with that idea, and he, and he steals, steals that pretty much solo. But does anybody remember whose idea it was for him to steal the blessing? It was his mother's, right? It was Rebecca's. Apple tree, right? The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. She's the one who comes up with the whole plot of, putting, of sending Esau out, of putting the, the goat skin on so that he feels hairy, of making him smell a certain way, all of those things. It's all Rebecca. Well, now where's Jacob? Well, he's with his uncle, his mother's brother. So we're going to keep that in mind as we continue on in the story. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was a, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I, <clears throat> that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but it seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me <clears throat> my wife, my time is completed. So Laban brought, brought together all the people of the, of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her, and Laban gave his servant Ziphla to his daughter as their attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? So first of all, let's just acknowledge that's a messed up story. Okay, we get that. Uh, but what do we do here, right? So there's clearly some history of trickery within this family, right? Rebecca comes up with a plot that tricks Isaac out of the blessing. Laban has now just come up with a plot that's going to trick Jacob out of what he was looking for as well. We've seen Jacob uh, trick Esau and others as well. But in this case, the trickster has been tricked. So what we have going on in this story, Jacob stays with his uncle, and while he's there, Laban's daughter, yes, it's his cousin, I know that's weird too, that's part of the weirdness to it, but also different culture, different time, I don't know, it just is. And so while he's there, Rachel catches his eye. Now, I did a little bit of work this week because I was fascinated, and maybe you were too, when it says that Leah has weak eyes, what does that mean? Um, and uh, so I did a little bit of work just because I was curious. Uh, and if you're curious too, this doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, but I thought I'd tell you. Uh, nobody knows what it means, right? Like there are more, uh, there are more possible understandings than... Uh, like, it, there wasn't a compelling definitive one. The three that kind of kept popping up uh, were that it could be a, he, a Hebrew uh, idiom commenting on her attractiveness, Right? Essentially, she was okay looking, but Rachel was smoker. It was smoking hot, right? Like one of those kind of things. I don't know. Like that's possibly a, what it could be. Uh, the other uh, possible explanation is that her eyes could have been dull, like they didn't pop. I, I, that one seemed weak to me. Like I guess Rachel had something in her eyes that, that Leah didn't. The, the third is that maybe she had a vision problem, 
right? That she literally couldn't, her eyes were actually weak, and so that was an unattractive quality or something. But, no, but even throughout the rabbis, nobody really is like, this is what it is. So now you know. We don't know. We got what weak eyes mean. Uh, but doesn't, that part doesn't really matter. Either way, Jacob is attracted to Rachel and not to, and wasn't really into Leah. Um, and so, but, but he says to his uncle, hey, I will work uh, to be able to marry Rachel. At the wedding, though, Laban switches the two of them around. Now, let's just be honest about this. This is not a good look for Jacob or Laban or really anybody, right? It's not a good look for Leah either, to be honest. It's not a good look for anybody. Um, <clears throat> you can do the work here to connect the dots of what must have happened, right? You have an all-day feast with an uncle who's plotting. It's a wedding. Wine's flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing, right? I'm not sure how else you don't notice who's next to you until the morning. Right? Like, I, I, not to be vulgar about it, but I, honestly, that seems to be the only possible understanding. He wakes up the next morning, what? You're Leah. Yeah, I know. See here last night too, right? Um, anyway. <laughs> so, so when Jacob wakes up, he realizes he's been had. And he goes to confront Laban. Why did you deceive me? Which is almost laughable, isn't it? Because that's all that Jacob's been doing this whole time is deceiving people. And now he's just been tricked. But the story continues. Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. But it would have been nice to know before the wedding. Um, finish, finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Just to be clear, once the, the marriage was consummated, if Jacob had left, he would have dis not only dishonored Leah, but he also would have dishonored Laban and himself because he would have been violating that, that, um, um, that custom right out of the gate. And so Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then, gave, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant uh, Bilah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and, the love for Rachel, and, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban for another seven years. So I want to pause here again for just a second. Now, throughout this part, now, throughout, um, this part of our Genesis series, we've seen some family drama. We saw it through the story of Isaac. We actually saw it in the story of Abraham and Sarah as well. We're seeing it now in the story of Jacob. Uh, and by this point, things have gotten pretty complex and pretty messed up. I, I mean, I read that we, this story was taught to me a lot when I was a kid, and actually when you slow down and read it, though, you realize how really messed up it is. Like, we're switching wives around here, we're working for things, we're tricking people, and these are all people's lives in the midst of this place. Each time you read through this story, your, your feelings shift all over the place. As you read through the story of the, early, of, of the fathers of Israel, you, you, you're constantly asking yourself, who's the victim in this story? In this story, is Jacob the victim? Right? He was cheated out of the wife that he was promised. And so he has a gripe. Hey, I worked for seven years. I thought this was the deal we were making. And then I found out that it was this. Is Rachel the victim? She's supposed to be married but has to wait another seven years. Is Leah the victim? How, your, how does your heart not break for her? She's now in a marriage with someone who doesn't love her. At the same time, if you're Jacob, you could go, but yeah, I, wasn't, I never committed to you on purpose. Right? You tricked me. You came in there knowing that that's not the way it was supposed to be. 
I can't even imagine, though, what that morning must have been like for Leah or the time after that, right? She's just been used by her dad to trick Jacob. Now Jacob's furious, and Leah has a part in all of that. There's, got, there's just a swirling eddy of emotion. Is Esau the victim? Because now he's out of a birthright and out of a blessing. Is Isaac the victim? Because he was tricked. There's a strange mix in all of these people throughout this story of both victim and villain, isn't there? Their scheming, their anger, their deception, their favoritism, their posturing have all rippled over top of one another, creating this really messed up situation. And it seems like the the messed upness of these situations keep getting worse and worse. And it keeps going. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this next part for the sake of time, but I encourage you to read it on your own. Jacob does work for Laban for another seven years, so he's 14 years at this point and marries Rachel too. He and Rachel have a son, Joseph. Uh, He's already also had a bunch of sons with Leah. He has six with Leah. He actually has four others with servants too. Yep, messed up story. We get that. But after Joseph's born, Jacob's ready to roll out. He's he's ready to to be done in this space. And so we pick the story back up in chapter 30. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And he added, name your wages, and I will pay them. See, Laban wants Jacob to stay, and so they work out a deal. Now, don't miss a subtle little line there. I have found, if I have found favor in the eyes, please stay. Uh, and then Laban makes this other statement. I have found out through divination. So if you were to fast forward to the law in Exodus, you'd realize that divination is one of the things that God is very, very against So there's already a messed up statement in here. If you are a person who lives in Israel uh, post-exile, I'm sorry, uh, post-exodus, as soon as the word divination popped up, you immediately go, "Uh uh-uh, that's not right. That's not how this thing should be working. And yet, there it is. It's an interesting mix between something that God would be very against and a call on his name in the midst of that. But, Jacob, but Laban wants Jacob to say, and so Jacob tells him, and this, I'll paraphrase this part too, he says, okay, fine, I'll stay, but I'm going to need to get paid. And so they work out this deal. He says, I get every speckled and spotted and dark-colored goat and sheep, so I'll take care of your flocks like I have been, but all the speckled and spotted and dark-colored ones, the ones that would be considered lesser or more impure, um, he goes, I get those, you get the rest. Which for Laban at first seems like a great idea. Like, I get the good ones, you get the bad ones, deal. Let's do that. That sounds great. But if you read through that story, whether Jacob knows what he's doing or not, uh, he basically starts a selective breeding program. Now, whether he understands how that works perfectly, probably not. Uh, But he's really good at it. He, he breeds the flocks to produce more speckled, spotted, and dark-colored animals. And he actually strong speckled, spotted, and dark-colored animals as well. So not only does he make sure he breeds the ones that have the spots to produce more ones with spots, but also does it with the strongest ones as well. And so in the midst of that then, Jacob becomes exceedingly rich, where Laban does not. Now, we're not going to read through that section, but if you do read through it on your own, there's one thing I want you to be, pay attention to is that in this selective breeding program that Jacob is doing, look how many times the the scripture writer uses Jacob's name. 
Jacob did this. It's really complicated and long, but that's also part of the point. Jacob did this thing, then he did this thing, then he did this thing, and it's always Jacob did all of those things. So keep that in mind. Picking back up at Genesis 31. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything from our father that our father owned and has gained all the wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob also noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. So this ripple of hurt and pain continues to spread outward. Is Laban the victim now? He outsmarted outsmarted Jacob for a while, only to be beaten by him in the end. See, we've got this cycle of deception and manipulation that's creating an ever-increasing quagmire of hurt that just keeps spinning. And so we'll look at the end of the story in 31.3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the field where the flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that, I worked, that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks... Then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young, and if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has, take, so God has taken away your father's life, Zach, and given them to me. Now, there are a few interesting things that I want us to take away from the end of this story as well. First, we've already talked about how much Jacob has been a deceiver. Actually, he is a horrible person through most of his story. Uh, if you're feeling anger towards Jacob in the way that he treats uh, Leah versus Rachel, if you're feeling it, felt it before in the way that he treated Esau, or the way that he treats a number of different people, you're right to feel that way. Jacob's not a good dude through most of his story. But I want us to notice that even though that's true, what we see in this part of the story here is that God is still with him. Don't miss that. Jacob has not been living the kind of life God has called him to. He stays with Laban because of divination, not because he talked with God first, and yet God's still there. It's a big deal. It's easy for us, and this is a small point, and it's a big deal, but a small point in this, in this particular story, but it's really easy to read the Old Testament through the lens of thinking that God is an angry, vengeful God throughout the Old Testament, and yet this kind of thing happens over and over and over again. People who didn't, don't deserve for God to still be there with him, and he still is over and over and over again. It's not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob either. It's throughout the judges. It's actually throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. So I just want to notice that God is still there with him. Second, do you see what Jacob did here? If we, if we, if we had read the whole goat passage before, I already said to you that, that you, it goes out of its way to make sure that we know that the reason that the speckled sheep were, were kept increasing is because Jacob worked really hard to make sure that happened. Jacob's calculated The other thing you'll notice in that whole section explaining why the flocks and herds grew is that God isn't mentioned at all. Why does that matter? Because now Jacob's ready to leave because because Laban is angry about the flocks. And what is Jacob's justification for his wealth? Well, God did it. Laban cheated me, so I cheated him, and clearly God wanted me to. Right? If If they produce speckled 
speckled sheep, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, dude, you're the one who made that happen. Like, this wasn't God. This was you. It's some mastery of justification. It's perfect whataboutism, right? It's important for us to pay attention to that because I think we can often fall into that same trap. That person hurt me, so I did something to hurt them back. But God would want justice, right? God's a God of justice, so I'm justified, or some variation of that. Well, the outcome worked out for me, so clearly God blessed me and not that person. It's easy for us to fall into that trap. The final thing I want us to see at the last, before we, 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 we bring it all the way back around, is that the relationship between Jacob and Laban is in a really bad spot. It says, it, with, it softens the blow a little bit in the English translation when it says that Laban doesn't look at Jacob like he used to. It's because he's really angry and Jacob is afraid of him because Jacob leaves secretly. We actually see in verse 20, moreover, Jacob delivered Laban, or, or sorry, Jacob deceived Laban, the, uh, the, the, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. They leave in the midst of the night because they, they don't want to tell Laban what's going on. What we have in this story is we have broken relationships, we have bridges burned, we have chaos in Jacob's wake. It's a super long story that we can't read the whole thing, and so, again, highly encourage you, but what ends up happening at the end of this story is that Laban ends up chasing Jacob down, and the two of them have this long debate about who really is the victim here. Laban runs to, catches up with Jacob, and he goes, what are, you t- what are you mad about? And Laban's like, what do you mean, what am I mad about? You did all these things. And Jacob goes, you can't be mad about that because you did all these things. And they have that debate in the midst of this space, right? You, you left without letting me say goodbye. Yeah, well, you didn't pay me fair wages. Yeah, but I didn't even get to hug my grandkids. Yeah, but haven't you cheated? Haven't I created wealth for you for the last 20 years? But you stole from me. But no, you stole from me. Like, that's literally the discussion that these two people have with each other. And the crazy thing is, they're both right. They both have legitimate reasons to be upset with the other. They've both caused each other pain. They disagree on the degree, right? They disagree on who is more at fault, which is probably relatable to a lot of us. But you can't argue that they don't have legitimate gripes. They do. Both of them have not treated the the other in the best way they could. So what's the point? Well, we've been talking about forgiveness. And before we, we, I'm going to give one caveat before we move into the conclusion. Last week we talked about how forgiveness is often for the person forgiving, and that is true, and I want us to hold on to that. I also want us to acknowledge that there are hurts that are caused that, in, that, <clears throat> that are in some circumstances, mostly, and like I mean a lot, or entirely the fault of one person. That does exist sometimes. For instance, if you've been assaulted, that's not your fault. Forgiveness in that space, space can still bring you healing, but what we're going to talk about next doesn't apply to those situations. Those are different situations, and I think it's important just to name that. That being said, I'm guessing that the cycle we looked at today in Jacob's story feels a little too familiar to some of us. 
this debate on who is the victim in this space. Maybe it's in your marriage. She always yells at me for not cleaning up my dishes, at the same time not respecting my workspace. When she fixes that, I'll fix my thing. I'm the victim here. Yeah, I'm doing that, but it's because of this. Sounds an awful lot like Jacob and Laban. Or, well, if he didn't do that, I would do this. Sure, I did that one thing, but she lied to me about this thing. It's a constant cycle of victimhood and justifying bad actions by the other. And most likely, in a lot of those scenarios, the slights you experienced are real. I don't know if I've ever seen a, a marriage dispute where there aren't legitimate gripes from both parties. We fall into those cycles where we're constantly hurting each other, and so then we constantly feel justified in the hurt that we cause. So I'll ask you the question, if you're, in, if you're there, how's the victim cycle working for you? Are you resolving anything? Or is it starting to feel like it's spiraling similar to Jacob's story? That the more that we're keeping score in that way, the more complicated and more hurtful it becomes. Maybe it's not your marriage, maybe it's family dynamics. My brother completely cheated me after my grandma died so I can be a jerk to him in these family functions. My brother did not cheat me, but it's just an example. Or my sister said some horrible things about me last Christmas, so she's not invited this year. Or my dad, my mom, right, whatever it might be, they did these things, so this is the way I respond. It's this constant victim cycle. How's that working for you? Are things getting better, or does it feel like it's spiraling? Maybe it's a work relationship or something that happened at a church you were part of, or this church even. Whatever it might be, we fall into these cycles really easily. And the thing is, we have two choices when it comes down to it. We can view ourselves as victims. Again, I'm not saying that those hurts aren't real. In most, in most cases, they are. What I mean is that we view ourselves as, when we, when, what I mean is by viewing ourselves as victims is similar to what we see in Jacob's story. You hurt me, so you owe me, and one way or another, I'm going to get what I owe, what I'm owed. I'm justified in this action because I was owed for that one. Which creates pain for the other person who then reacts in the same way, creating a never-ending cycle of escalating hurts. It doesn't make things better or make things less complicated, but contends to make things worse, which cascades throughout our lives, like we've seen in Jacob's story too. But it doesn't just stop at our lives either, does it? It cascades through our kids' lives. Jacob's grandkids left in the middle of the night not saying bye to grandpa. That's going to have an effect on them. His kids are going to watch Jacob love one of his one of their mothers and not the other. Again, I get a messed up situation, but that's still going to affect them. This cycle 
cascades throughout our lives, it cascades through our kids' lives, and even our grandkids' lives. When the Bible talks about generational sin, meaning sin is just missing the mark, this is what it's talking about. That the, that the things that I don't deal with now will affect my kids, which then if they don't deal with them will affect my grandkids, which if they don't deal with them will affect their, their kids. It just keeps spiraling through the, through, these, through the different generations. We have the option of just continuing that victim cycle, something we can do, the choice you have. There is another option, however, and it's the one that Jesus often puts before us, and that's the option of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the only way to break this cycle. If you choose to, to let go of what you're owed, the cycle can stop. The entire cycle is based on, you did this to me, so now you owe me, so I'm going to get what I'm owed. If I say, you did this to me, and I'm owed, and I'm going to forgive you, the cycle breaks. Now, most people's first response to that is, goes, well, that's not fair. <clears throat> and, of course, it's not. It's not at all. Forgiveness, by its very nature, is unfair. You are owed, and you're releasing what you owed. That's not fair, and it can't be. In the New Testament, <clears throat> Jesus addresses just that point. He tells a parable. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. One guy stands in front of a person who he owes an astronomical amount of money to, and that person says, I'll forgive that debt. He then goes to somebody that owes him money, less than what was just forgiven, and he says, you owe it to me, pay me. Well, that is fair. The guy did owe him, but it's, but it's missing the plot of what, what we're doing here to try to break the cycles. Forgiveness is unfair. It's always going to feel unfair because by its very nature, that is what it is. And yet, it's life-changing because it can break this, this constant vicious victim cycle. Victim cycles never get better. Until somebody decides they're going to step in and break the, the chain, it's just going to continue to escalate. So how do we do that? And we'll do that quickly here. I know we're running up against the clock. The first step is the one we've brought up each week so far when we talk about forgiveness. It's one of the hardest. It's being aware of what you, what's going on inside. What do you feel owed? Forgiveness is impossible if I don't have at least some kind of understanding of what I'm feeling owed. I think we've said this every week. So many of us live in this space of just ambiguous hurt and ambiguous owing. They owe me. Well, what do they owe you? I don't know. They hurt me, and they better figure it out. That's, that makes it really difficult to move forward. So the first step when we're trying to break this cycle is awareness. What do I feel that I'm owed? The second leads into that, and it's accountability. What we saw throughout Jacob's story is that when we've created this victim cycle, both parties have repeatedly caused hurt to the other, and those hurts are real. It's easy for us to self-justify and say, well, yeah, I hurt you, fine, but it's because you hurt me first. And then we get in this whole debate, like Laban and Jacob do, about who actually hurt the other person more. You don't get anywhere there. Accountability is to say, I understand that you, I have hurt you, and I will own that. And maybe there is dis, like, discrepancies in how much. And so the basic principle of doing that is, is simple. And it works really well if you can do it. It's easier said than done. Uh, but it's just a simple practice of affirming what you can affirm. 
It doesn't mean you have to affirm everything, but it's saying I can affirm what I can affirm. I, I understand that when I said this thing to you, leave out the part of because you did this other thing, that doesn't help. But when, you, when I said this thing to you, I can affirm that that probably hurt you or it did hurt you, and I'm sorry. Something that simple can often take so much pressure out of the discussion so you can actually get into a space in which maybe you hopefully both agree to forgive. Sometimes, you, sometimes yes, sometimes no in the midst of that. But affirming what you confirm, own what you can own. That's not saying you have to own things that you don't have to own. That's a, that takes wisdom and prayer and thoughtfulness in the midst of all of that. But it is saying that most, in most of those dispute victim cycles, you've both caused hurt. And so just own your part of it. But like we said, that's complex. What do I need to own here? What do I not need to own? Because there are some of us that will own too little. Hey, you, you, you picked the littlest thing there, and it doesn't actually have the impact that it ought to. But then there are also are some of us that will own more than what we have to. We don't want that either, right? And so the, 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 final, the final step in how we do this thing well uh, is prayer and community. Is, is to constantly be walking with God in the midst of that, to saying, hey, what, do I, what can I affirm here? What part do I need to own? What do I feel like I'm own? Can you give me wisdom on this thing so that we can do this thing right? Part of that prayer process is by yourself in your personal prayer life, and part of it probably which would be with some trusted people that you have around you. Often in those situations, someone else can give you great perspective on that. Hey, own this, don't own that. Hey, admit that you caused hurt here, don't cause it here. Hey, when, when you actually do release the debt that you're owed and it feels unfair, let's go vent about it in the garage. Um, I actually have a good buddy of mine that will, I'll garage vent with. It's, it's fantastic, right? Hey, can we just watch some golf in the garage and I'm just going to, and he can listen, and then we're over it, move on. It's awesome. Sometimes we need that, because sometimes those forgiveness spaces are really unfair, and that causes us pain that we don't want to direct back towards the person we're trying to heal with. Forgiveness is one of, we're spending this many weeks on it because it is one of the hardest things that we have to do. It's excruciating. It causes us pain. It causes us hurt. It, it feels unfair. It feels, like, it, it feels like we're giving up power. It feels like all of these different feelings are spiraling in between, which is why we're so bad at it in so many cases. But we have two options. We cannot deal with it and fall into the victim cycles that we saw Jacob fall into with Laban, in which, that we, in which we hurt ourselves, but also all of the ripples that come out of that, the, everybody else around us as well. We can stay in that space. But if any of you are living in that space right now, you know how hard and uncomfortable that is. Or we can do the hard work and actually find the life that comes out of that. I'm not going to lie, it's not easy. I've said that every single week. But if we have a community here that's committed to doing that with each other, it gets a lot easier. Forgiveness is insanely difficult, but it is one of the most life-giving things you can do. Honestly, it might be the, mo the purest expression of love that we can do on this side of eternity. You have slighted me, and I'm going to choose to let it go because you matter more to me than that thing. 
If that doesn't change things, I don't know what does. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just come before you this morning and realize that uh, we can often fall into cycles of justifying what we've done because of what somebody else has done. We realize that we can view ourselves as just a victim in the midst of it all. And so our actions don't have the same consequence or we feel justified in them. God, we first just pray that you give us eyes to see that. The areas in which we haven't lived up to what you've called us to, not because you love us any differently, you still showed up for Jacob after he did all of those things, but because you desire what's best for us and that's not best. God, then give us the courage to own what we can own and the fortitude of will and spirit to let go even when it's unfair. God, give us eyes to see each other so that as we walk through these difficult things, we, can, we don't have to do it alone. That we can be there to care and support each other and encourage us uh, through those, that really difficult process of forgiving. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.